It's something for nothing. The Rush Fancast. Jerry and Steve with you. Jer, we've got a different episode today about a venue that was special to Rush. That's right. It's all about Massey Hall. Massey Hall. Very exciting. You can find us on Twitter. We are at Rush Fancast. Instagram. We are at The Rush Cast. Email Jerry, therushcast at gmail.com. Follow or subscribe via your favorite podcast app. The bass intro and outro, that of course is Lex. And Jerry, I know you've got a great email to get us started, so let's hear it. I do. This is about something that we mentioned, I believe we were talking about Grace Under Pressure Live. Oh, nice. So this is from Adam, who also signed his email as Rushman. So maybe his friends call him Rushman. I've been waiting to hear from the Rushman. This is great. (laughs) I discovered your podcast last summer and finally caught up with the current episode. It's gotten me through the pandemic thus far and made my nearly daily commute much more enjoyable. Thanks to both of you, I almost look forward to going to work. You have only deepened my appreciation of my all-time favorite band with your witty banter, insightful musings, and great interviews. This would be a great time for us to engage in some kind of witty banter. (laughs) I have nothing. I'm just listening to this great email. Please continue. After listening to your episodes on the live albums, I dug out all four of my rare Rush laser discs nice and played them perhaps for the first time in decades i can't believe he sells a laser disc player that's what i was gonna say he has a player i can see still (laughs) having the discs but how do you have a laser disc player just laying around i have exit stage left grace under pressure live a show of hands and rush through the camera eye i believe i have every concert and video disc that rush ever released including chronicles dvd replay times three dvds these laser discs and all of the blu-rays However, you reminded me that there are rare and exclusive home video tracks on the Laserdiscs, and I found a few more rarities on the Rush Through the Camera Eye Laserdisc as well. Yes, these videos are now up on Vivo or YouTube, but what fun is that? So the Laserdisc of A Show of Hands adds a lock and key live performance. The Laserdisc of Grace Under Pressure adds a full-length official music video of the big money. Yeah, I heard about that. That would be cool to check out. But the real treat was my Laserdisc of Rush Through the Camera Eye, released right after Exit Stage Left, which was a specially produced Laserdisc and VHS of eight of Rush's best videos. It was never released to DVD or Blu-ray, to my knowledge. I was also thrilled to watch my Laserdisc again with official music videos for the Body Electric, Vital Signs, and Countdown, some of my favorite songs by Rush. So the videos included on that are the Distant Early Warning video, the Vital Signs video, which is not on Chronicles, the Body Electric video, which is not on Chronicles, the video for After Image, the video for Subdivisions, the video for Tom Sawyer from Exit Stage Left, the live version, the Enemy Within, and the Countdown video, which is also not on Chronicles. Wow. So that's a lot of extra stuff. Yeah. And then he signs off with, keep up the amazing work on the podcast, gents, and I will buy you guys lunch if you ever make it up to the Detroit metro area well that's cool and as an extra super bonus he included pictures of all the laser discs so i'm going to put them up on our instagram oh nice that's awesome i'll put them up on twitter too send them to me i will i thought you were going to say there was a picture of the rush man i'd like to see the rush man <laughs> holding up all of his collectible laser discs <laughs> i haven't been to detroit in a while I, I have to say detroit is not one of my favorite cities do you have to say that steve i didn't have to say it but <laughs> But it's true. It's true. But if I ever get back there, I would love to meet up with the Rush Man. That would be great. Maybe we can uh, watch his laser discs. That would be cool, too. You know, over the past 
what is it, over 130 episodes we've got now, Jar? Yes. We've discussed a lot of books about Rush, and we've been lucky enough to talk to the creators of those books. But today, we've got something really special. It's a book about the venue Rush helped make famous, Massey Hall. That's right. That Night at Massey Hall. It's a beautiful and spectacular book, and its author is David Binks. David, welcome to the Rush Fancast. Hi, it's really good, and uh, thank you for inviting me to join you guys. Thanks for joining us. And David, we like to start out by asking our guests their Rush origin story. When did you first hear Rush, and how did you become a fan? Oh, it's going way, way back. I grew up in uh, Sheffield in England, and just to describe Sheffield, it's sort of the, the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania equivalent, or if you're from Canada, it's it's Hamilton, Ontario, it's the Steel City. So very industrial, very working class, close community, quite tough. Uh, and we're talking about back in the 70s. And so that that's back in the days when you didn't have a lot of widespread access to to media or there was no downloadable music and your your taste really in what you listened to was driven by your brothers or your sisters and your school friends that you you hung out with and i grew up with two older brothers and they were into rock and progressive rock so we listened a lot to zeppelin and uh, yes wishbone ash pink floyd deep purple bands like that and i hung out with friends who did the same and getting access in those days to North American music was somewhat limited or, or to less well-known or up-and-coming acts that were breaking through as Rush were in the UK around that time. But we were lucky. We had a Virgin Records store, uh, one of the very first ones that opened back in the early 70s. As a teenager, it was this really hip place. They, it was the first place I'd ever been in that had Joss sticks, and the staff all looked as though they were straight out of a band and they had headphones on the counter. And because Virgin had originally started as a mail order vinyl business, what they also did was they stopped some of the less well-known North American acts that were beginning to break through. And I'm pretty sure that that's where my best friend at the time from school, a lad called Graham, uh, would have picked up his Rush albums. And so the very first time I heard Rush was in his parents' front room on a, a fairly basic hi-fi system. Uh, ironically, because we're going to talk about Massey Hall, it was the uh, All all the World's a Stage album. Uh, I think he had 2112 as well. But I, I know the first album I listened to was on a summer's afternoon in that front room. And my first reaction which uh, I, I hope I'm not going to offend you guys, but my first reaction was I thought they sounded a bit like yes, uh, because you had to have a reference point in those days. I, I guess it was Geddy's uh, distinctive voice but uh, that I sort of paired off with John Anderson. Um, but it was a much harder riff, and, and I love the, the more driven drumming sound. And, of course, it helped that it was a live album. As I fell for it straight away. Uh, for some reason in those days, as teenagers, if it was live, then it had more credibility. You know, we all owned Deep Purple live in Japan, and we had Wishbone Ash live dates, and the song remains the same from Zeppelin. And I guess the other thing that helped me become uh, pretty much an immediate fan was the first track, uh, Being Bastille Day, 
I don't know whether it's because it was the first, but uh, is is still my my favorite Rush song of all time. So that that was my first experience, and then the first time I saw Rush, I also can uh, I can't name the date, but I know exactly the experience. So saw as in saw them on a TV in the UK. We used to have an old TV show called The Old Grey Whistle Test. This was the only outlet where you could watch non-chart music. It was a late night on a Tuesday. Uh, this was pre-video recorded, so everybody watched it at the same time, and then you talked about it at school the following day, and they, they would have live bands on. And occasionally, they would also have clips that were sent over from North America of bands that we'd heard of, but we'd never seen. And for many years, these occasions were the only times that we would actually get to see uh, some of these artists, other than look at the album cover photos. And so I think it, it was probably 1977 that they had a clip on the old grey whistle test of Xanadu. Yeah, that was a buzz in school uh, the following day and everybody was talking about it. So that, that I recall that very, very clearly as well. So that, that was my first time hearing and my first time actually visually seeing the band. That's so lucky that you had a Virgin Records store <laughs> near you. It really was. I don't, I don't know. Virgin opened, I think, in 71. And I think it might have been the fourth or fifth Virgin record store. And it was quite racy. It was uniquely dark uh, with all these joysticks burning and these cool guys working behind the counter. And and even in those days, the name Virgin was it was <laughs> right. a little bit racy to, to call something Virgin. And so, uh, yeah, and it was a great store. And, you know, it was a Saturday afternoon hangout. You just spend all day doing that little flick that we all perfected in those days of <laughs> moving album covers forward in racks. And I remember the, 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 the album covers were always in plastic folders as well to protect them. So they really looked after the stuff in the shop. And, and of course, in those days, a, you know, a, a vinyl, a piece of vinyl was, was like gold to you because you, we couldn't afford that many of them. So David, your love for live music just oozes from this book. And in the introduction, you describe your first live show in England. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, and, and it, it actually has a, a strong link as well uh, to Rush because uh, my first show was at the Sheffield City Hall. I went to see a band called the Sensational Alex Harvey Band. The only reason I ended up going was my brother, who was perhaps, I, I guess, a little bit more shy than I was, heard a question on the radio to win tickets and the question was, uh, who's the lead singer of the sensational Alex Harvey band? And he didn't want to call in. So he ran downstairs and said, you've got to call the radio station now and tell them the answer. And it, Amazingly, because either nobody else got the obvious or nobody else wanted to go and see the sensational Alex <laughs> Harvey band. I was the first person to call in. Uh, we won two tickets I never experienced anything like it. The sound, the show, they were pretty theatrical. And Alex uh, was very theatrical, but they put on a great show. And I remember, you know, my ears ringing like crazy. And I, I just, you know, I think for all of us, that first time when you go and see a rock band, but, but it was the first time I went to see a rock band. And I, we were on, I think, the third row uh, because these were, radio prize tickets and so we were close up and 
it just it left one of those impressions and they're life-changing moments i think when you go and see your first show and and that certainly was for me and and created just a love for repeating the experience uh, ever since and interestingly the sheffield city hall is the the venue where rush played their first uh, show outside north america which i i think was pretty brave of them actually because Sheffield was a hard audience. I, I went to many shows where the feature act or the headliners got some real stick from the audience and got booed off stage. And, and also being from North America, being relatively uh, new at the time, that was a, a risky thing to do. I guess they played Sheffield because it was less in the forefront of the media. And so they probably wanted to get a, an early show out of the way. But I think the thing that they did and very sensibly was they used their own lighting equipment, or I understand they used their own lighting equipment, and they used their own sound as well. And as a result of that, they got very good reviews, even in the New Musical Express, which was a notoriously vicious British uh, rock mag, gave them good reviews. And they, they sold out, I think, most of that tour uh, subsequently. And they came back to Sheffield. I don't know, a few months later, I think the start of the following year, and then continued to play in Sheffield through pretty much uh, most of the European or the British tours, they would they would come back to Sheffield. So I, I guess they enjoyed it as well, but uh, uh, fair play to them. And it, it, it's you know one of those nice touches that uh, the City Hall is the, their first overseas venue. I've never seen, I did some research in, in the past and tried to find out why they picked Sheffield or... Uh, some some uh, significant comments, but maybe we'll have to wait for Geddy's book to come out before we we get the full story. Yeah. So, how did you find your way to Toronto all those years later? I left Sheffield, went to college, and ended up working for a parcel transportation company at college, and they got bought by a bigger parcel company, which uh, then took me uh, ultimately to work in in Belgium. And then from Belgium, I got posted overseas to Canada. And I'd always wanted to live and work in North America. I'd got some family experience from Canada as well. And so I wanted to go back and uh, wanted to see the place and live in the place and you know, experience uh, living in North America. And so I came to Toronto. And the rest, as they say, is history, except that I went from Toronto back to Europe, and then I went from Europe back to Toronto, and then I went from Toronto back to Europe. And, and now I'm sort of halfway between. Uh, I spend uh, a lot of time uh, here in Toronto. My wife is, is uh, Canadian-British, and we have family here. So I spend a lot of time in Toronto, but also uh, uh, do some work out of Europe as well. So a little bit split. And when I came to Toronto, immediately you find your way to music venues. And inevitably, I found my way to Massey Hall. And uh, I, as I tell in the book, you know, my first experience was not a particularly good one. Uh, I went to see uh, Paul Weller, who I've followed and been a fan of for many years. Uh, and I'd seen Weller on a number of occasions. Uh, and so my girlfriend and now who is now my wife, I described how fantastic this gig was going to be. Uh, and it was February, snowing like crazy. 
the sound in the hall, and, and bear in mind, Massey Hall is legendary for its wonderful sound. The sound that night was awful. The place was half empty because I don't think people managed to get there. It was freezing cold inside, but you just, you know, when you found somewhere that is special and that you want to come back to and, and the history of the place just connected with me and its quirkiness. You know, Massey is a fantastic venue and the renovated hall is absolutely beautiful. But in those days and over the years, it's, it's, it's been a bit quirky and some of the sight lines are not perfect and there are poles and posts that get in the way and getting to the washrooms was horrible. And on a cold day, it could be really cold in there and there was the seats were uncomfortable and the balconies were steep. So, yeah, it wasn't a perfect, but you know what? I just, I just knew that it was somewhere that uh, I was going to come back to and see shows time and time again. And, uh, and that's what I did. Uh, every chance I would get, I'd go down to Massey uh, as I was traveling for work. Sometimes I would come home at the weekend and my wife would say, I've bought tickets for some band at Massey tonight. And we hadn't even heard of them. And we <laughs> would just, just go down and see the show because I love going to see live bands. I've, I've told people in the past, I'm probably the only person if, if I pass a, a street busker a busker worker, I, it's what we call them in the UK, a street uh, guitar singer. Uh, I'm, I'm probably the person who stays for the whole set and then and then gives them the money and then wanders off. I, I, just anything to do with live music, I love. You know, as a baseball fan, your description of Massey Hall reminds me of Fenway Park, believe it or not. <laughs> Have you ever been to Fenway Park in Boston with the poles blocking the view? It's just a beautiful park, but it's uncomfortable. I'm a baseball fan. Strangely enough, I'm a Houston Astros and a, a Toronto Blue Jays fan. My brother lived in Houston for a few years, and I used to go and visit him. And uh, he would let me drink beer and watch baseball uh, all through the summer and take me to games. And so I fell in love with baseball. And uh, so I have been to Fenway. Uh, I went to Fenway on my 40th birthday, actually, to watch uh, the Toronto Blue Jays uh, play Boston. And as usual, the Blue Jays lost. <laughs> is that is that a dig at the Blue Jays, Steve? I'm, uh, I'm, not, I'm not too sure. <laughs> I think it's a dig. But, but <laughs> is, is my comparison about right? Would you say Massey Hall is to concert venues as Fenway Park is to baseball stadiums? Yeah, it's spot on. It's spot on. I mean, you, you, you sit there and you look around and you know you're somewhere special. Um, but you also... You, you sense you're somewhere that prior to renovation, that you're somewhere that is a little bit quirky and is is not the the best baseball watching experience or the, not the best concert watching experience. But of course, then it's the quality of what you actually see and watch. And I guess you've had some pretty good times at Fenway and uh, I've had some pretty good times at uh, Massey Hall as well. You said in your uh, forward to the book that there was a, a familial connection to your reason for creating this book. You want to tell us that story? Yeah, well, there were a couple. I was at uh, Massey one evening. I happened to be on my own, not by design. Uh, I went to see uh, a tremendous uh, organization who are uh, called uh, Classic Albums Live, who reproduce albums with a bunch of really talented musicians. 
and they play the album literally note for note. And it's a great way of seeing stuff that you'll never be able to see genuinely the album that you love in a live format like that, even though it's a cover, obviously. So I went to see Pink Floyd, The Wall, performed by Classic Albums. And I was, because I was on my own in Massey Hall, there used to be a bar area downstairs called Centuries Bar. And Centuries Bar was just full of photos of people who'd appeared at the hall. And then just outside the bar, there would be posters everywhere of previous shows going back over decades, in fact, going back over a century. And so I was just wandering around doing what I always did is get a beer and then you walk around and you look at the pictures and you go, I've seen him, seen him, seen him, not seen him, not seen her, not seen them, don't know who that is, uh, and reading the posters. And a couple of things, it coincided with a couple of things. Uh, I'd been doing some, trying to trace my grandfather and my grandfather had moved to Toronto uh, back in 1913, and he lived uh, in the city for a short while, got married, had a daughter, but then he went back to fight in the First World War. And after the war, he did not come back to Toronto. He settled back in the UK. Uh, so I was, I was trying to find, I was looking at the posters, trying to imagine whether he, he would have been to Massey Hall. And I'd done this research on his heritage in Canada and found the addresses where he used to live, uh, but they're, they're all gone through redevelopment. And so I couldn't find anything about him. But I had this strange feeling that I knew that he'd been to Massey Hall. And, you know, you never know whether that's right or not, but it just it felt that way. And I was looking at the posters, imagining, well, maybe, you know, it would have been this sort of time and wondering what show he might have been at. And around the same time, I was reading a book by a guy called Lawrence Kirsch, who is a rock photographer who's based in Montreal. And Lawrence uh, did a book about uh, Springsteen, which was all fan stories about Springsteen together with photos. And so uh, I thought, well, I, I can't tell my grandfather's story, but I love music and I love reminiscing. And I love those, those nights where you sit around with friends and you say, do you remember that night that we went to see such and such a band or that night that we went to the Albert Hall or that night that we, whatever it is. And the thoughts all just sort of came together and I thought, wouldn't it be a great idea if I can't tell my grandfather's story, then I'll tell other people's stories about something that I love about Toronto and I'll tell stories about Massey Hall. And that together with reading Lawrence's book was the sort of the, the catalyst. And then I called Lawrence didn't know he was in Canada, didn't know he was Montreal-based at all at the time. Uh, called him, chatted, um, we stayed in touch. My wife bought the domains for the book before I even had a chance to argue whether it was a good idea or not. She bought them for 10 years, which was a great prompt. I was working full-time in business and traveling a lot for work, so I never really had the time to get around to it. But then in 2018, I went into semi-retirement and in semi-retirement, I thought, well, now is the time to be able to actually make this project actually come to life. And so I kicked it off around then and, uh, and then we published right at the very back end of uh, 2021. So David, how did you go about collecting these amazing stories? I mean, they're so great. And how did you decide what artists to include? The story gathering process was really we we put we put a website together 
and then together with Twitter and Facebook, just reached out and, and said, you know, explained what we wanted to do. We were interested in any story or any image, with the exception of we didn't want selfies. We wanted images of what was actually happening. And it could be about anything, and it could be from anybody. So if you had a small anecdote or you had a 1,500-word story uh, or if you had a photo uh, from anybody, anytime, uh, then we were happy to receive it. And also, we encourage people to send images of memorabilia as well, tickets or posters or programs or, or, or whatever it might be. We put that out there in late 2018, and we were going along quite nicely. Uh, but then COVID hit, and actually we benefited an awful lot from COVID because people spent a lot of time in front of their computer screens. And people also had time to sort out their old photos and to sit down and write stories. And so over the the first 12 months of a lot of people being locked down, we got a lot of material. I think in total, uh, about 700 different stories, uh, about 800 images that came through. Imagine what it's like. You've got a 1,500-piece jigsaw. And I remember the weekend that I started putting it together. It was literally like starting a jigsaw. You just had no idea where to start or where the pieces would fit together. But you start. I started to gather little groups. So predictably, there was you know, a load of rush submissions and stories. And so I gathered all the rush stuff together. And then I realized that uh, I could do the same with Gordon Lightfoot and I could do the same with, uh, there were a lot of stories about the legendary Dylan show where he went electric. And there were stories uh, about the tragically hip because obviously being Canadian, a lot of Neil Young stuff came in. Uh, there's the legendary 83 show from U2 uh, that took place. And, and so I, I started to, as you do with a jigsaw, you put the blue bits together and the red bits together and the green bits together. And, and then you start to piece it together. And then you realize that some pieces are in the wrong place. And uh, we had some stories that didn't have photos and some photos that didn't have stories. And we had some uh, where we were able to close those gaps by deliberately going out and and appealing on social media. Does anybody have these images? Or we did some searching for the images as well, or similarly with the stories as well. And so over a period of time, the picture came together. Uh, I created a lot of themes as well. Uh, you, you've seen the book and you've been through it, so you'll know uh, there are themes around things that went wrong on stage or protocols that people were supposed to observe or there's there's a couple of pages about pot smoking stories there's some romance stories um so we created some themes and then i was i was exceptionally lucky that i was introduced to a boutique design agency in toronto sorry i should say as well that the part of the problem was i was almost done and the, the goal was to get to 200 pages for the book and uh, as I was getting to the end and trying to curate this material down into 
200 pages, people would keep sending me new stuff. And the new stuff would come out and go, oh, God, got to put that in, got to put that in, got to put that in. And so as I was actually closing it out, it was growing as well. So, uh, you know, in the morning, I'd sort of cut it down. And then in the afternoon, new stuff would come. And by the end of the day, I'd have more than I had at the start of the day. Um, so it was a, a very iterative process as well. But at the end of the day, uh, we got it down uh, and I was introduced to a design agency, a boutique agency called Underline Studios, who'd done book work uh, previously and do a fantastic job. Uh, and they helped as well to, to really bring the material to life. Uh, with some great layout and some great use of font. But the other thing that I really wanted to make sure was that the photography was well represented because the, some of the images I, I think have never been seen before had laid in people's basements or in, in their photo boxes for you know decades. Uh, and some of it was professional stuff that photographers had sort of said, well, I, nobody's ever going to use this material. And then all of a sudden... I was going back saying, you know, do you have any old Rush photos from the 70s? Do you have any Dylan photos from the 60s? Do you have any photos of the U2 concert I mentioned uh, is a classic one because the U2 show I'd read about and heard about many times, the 83 show, and Bono climbs up into the balcony during the show. And I'd heard about this, uh, but I'd never seen any images of it. And so, you know, the fact that we gathered some of this tremendous photography and some of the memorabilia as well. I wanted to make sure we we represented it really well. And that's why there are lots of what I think are stunning double-page spreads uh, throughout the book and, and where the images are integrated into the stories as well. The design guys just did a, a fabulous job for me. And it sort of gradually came together. I didn't know what it was going to look like when I started. I didn't, and to be honest, you build the website and you put the post out on Facebook and Twitter, and you you think, yeah, I'm going to be, yeah, I'm going to get three stories and nothing else, and this will be a total disaster. But fortunately, people have such an affection for the music that they've seen at Massey and for the venue itself, and for more importantly, for the memories. You know, people's affection for those nights that they recall is tremendous. And, and one of the things I noticed was I would get people uh, write to me and describe how their parents took them to their first show. And then that they went with their brother and sister to a show. And then they went with their school friends or they didn't tell their parents that they were going to Massey Hall and they snuck down and went to a show on their own with their school friends. And then they, they took their girlfriend, and then there's a band that they've seen multiple times, and now they're taking their children to Massey Hall. And so it was that continuum that, that came out that was particularly heartwarming. And so because there's so much affection for those memories, then the material just came flooding in. And, and I really hope that uh, we did a good job of of representing those memories and that material and the, and the great photography that that people submitted. Yeah, it's absolutely a gorgeous coffee table book, if you ask me. Before we get into talking a little bit more about Rush, what is it do you think about Massey Hall? Because you mentioned 
that, you know, it's not, or it wasn't before the renovation as gorgeous as some other well-known places like maybe the Beacon in New York City. But people love Massey Hall. So what do you think is the, is the essence of that devotion to this place? The sound is beautiful and iconic, but I, I guess that's been a little bit predictable or was beautiful and iconic. I think it still is. We can talk about the renovation, but uh, there's no reason to think that, that it has diminished at all because I know the guys down there were so uh, meticulous about trying to preserve what was great about the hall. It has an intimacy that when you walk into the hall, it's got a beautiful facade outside, and then you, you go through the big iconic doors, the red doors, and then you're inside of what is a, a fairly small uh, hallway and then you go up a little ramp into where the stage, so the downstairs seating is. But as soon as you walk up there, you, you almost feel as though the stage is right in front of you. There's a fantastic photo right at the front of the book of a lady walking up the ramp into the hall. And it, it looks as though you know, the place is so shallow and the seats are right there. And then when you, when you get inside and you turn around and you look up, it, it feels as though the balconies, the, the two of them, are, are right on top of you. It almost feels as though it is, it is vertical. And it, it creates this atmosphere that I think is genuinely warm. And so many people in the stories, in the 700 stories that came, that were submitted, and, and in many that are included in the book, and there are 300 stories included in the book, uh, so many of the stories say that it's it's a little bit like being in your own living room and experiencing seeing an artist, and I think that describes it uh, very well. I I loved and still love the fact that it is a little bit quirky. I love the history, and uh, interesting that whenever I talk to people about the book prior to its publication, whenever I would talk to somebody, they would tell me the history. They would say, oh, do you know that, you know, Dylan did this and Brush did this and Neil Young did this? And do you know that Caruso played there? And do you? they would start recounting the stories back to me. And I think there's a real familiarity uh, with that history. And that sort of makes it special as well. But I, I think that the thing that makes it so special to so many people is what I was talking about before, is it's a little bit of a pathway through your musical history, uh, particularly for people in Toronto and Ontario or Canadians or people who visited uh, Toronto a lot and had ex had the opportunity to go there. And I guess the final piece is just the part it plays in so many bands' history as well as they as they evolve and what it means to get to Massey Hall. And we can talk a little bit about that in the, in the context of, of Rush. Um, but, but in so many of the stories as well, as you go through the book about, uh, the, there's a section uh, covering opening acts and you see some of the people who've opened there. Um, there's a great story by uh, Ron Sexsmith where he describes the fact that you know, playing Massey was so important to him, uh, and yet he refused to play Massey uh, until he was the headline because he, he wanted to save the experience and he wanted to make it special. There's just that affection that I, that I think is wonderful on so many levels.
Let's talk about that connection as it relates to Rush. They've been connected to Massey Hall from their teenage years, really. Getty's first concert was at Massey Hall. I believe he saw Cream there in June 1968. What do you know about that show? Yeah, I don't know whether it was his first show or not. I've seen somewhere that it was his first show at Massey, but I've uh, I've not been able to absolutely confirm that. But he talks about going there, and it's in a number of interviews that I've read and seen. And of course, he was influenced by Jack Bruce. And so went to the show and I, I read that he, uh, he couldn't find, none of his friends were interested in going down to the, to the show. <laughs> um, so uh, he ended up going on his own. And ironically, he was sat in the balcony and he was sat behind one of the infamous posts that exist in those balcony seats. The interesting thing as well is he described it as the strangest and greatest experience uh, that he had seen cream. And I wondered for a while what that was all about. And I thought, well, he's probably talking about the strangest being the fact that he was he was sat behind a post. But then in the, the course of putting the book together, I managed to connect with a guy called John Pinto, who took some photos of each of the band members uh, that night at Massey. And the photos are, 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 are stunning black and white images. And again, I, I don't think they've ever been published anywhere previously. They may have, but not for a long time. And John's photos were worked on by uh, another photographer called Edwin Galitz. And they were both to enhance the photos and to, to update them and to get them to a, a sufficient quality for us to use in the book because they'd laid dormant for decades. And when I was uh, talking to John and Edwin, they were both at the show that night and they have totally different accounts of the show. So if you talk to Edwin, he'll tell you it was fantastic. It was a great show. The sound was typically Massey Hall fantastic. And then you talk to John and uh, John will tell you the sound was absolutely horrible. <laughs> and isn't it interesting how we have these these different memories of shows? And then uh, I read what Getty said about the show, and he explained that the band did not have their own PA system that evening. They only had two mics on stage, um, and that the sound was actually going through the Massey Hall PA system. So I think John was probably right that the sound was horrible. And I think that perhaps explains what Geddy was referring to when he made his, 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 uh, his comments about it being the strangest show that he'd seen. And I, I, I do wonder as well, uh, just going back to the Sheffield show we talked about earlier, whether that time he thought, you know what, when we go on tour, uh, we're going to take our own sound system and make sure it's <laughs> of good enough quality. But of course, seeing a trio like that, make a sound like that, clearly had an influence on uh, where Rush went. And I think seeing Jack Bruce as well uh, was a significant moment uh, for, for Geddy Lee himself. And what do you think the importance for Rush's first album to be at Massey Hall? Because it was a huge success for Rush, the first live album. What do you think it meant for them to have that first live album be at Massey Hall, this place that 
everyone reveres so much? I think it was a masterstroke. For so many successful Canadian artists, you know, Massey Hall is a, is a notable mark on their journey to the top. What you tend to see is that artists talk about discovering and attending shows at Massey in their formative years. Uh, they maybe make their debut at Massey as an opening act. Then they go on and headline. And that moment when they headline as I think one of the band members has said in the past, is a pinnacle prestige gig, the moment when you are the, the act at Massey Hall. And I also read that it's, uh, you know, playing Massey's was an unattainable dream for, for every young player. And then, of course, you, you move on because the venue is, is not the biggest. You end up playing arenas. And quite often, acts don't go back and revisit. But I think what Rush did was, you know, realizing that it was the right time to do a live album in their progression, to then mark that by going back to Massey and doing those three nights was absolutely the right thing to do. And I think, you know, just really marked their arrival and established them, you know, as as what they are today, which is Canadian music legends. And that album you know, when we started asking for stories, there were so many submissions for those three nights. And I have to tell you as well that you don't get a sense of it, but in many other stories that came in of the 700 stories, as so many of them mentioned as well, they were at those shows or that those shows marked the first time that they ever went to Massey Hall. That's, those lines were not always included in all of the stories. You know, I was beginning to wonder whether they extended the capacity uh, of the hall for the three <laughs> nights because it, it, it literally seems as though you know, absolutely everybody went there on those particular evenings. But I, I think what comes out as well from the submissions and from the stories that, that are included, I think they convey an atmosphere you can almost smell it for the three nights. You can smell this this summer evening uh, or early summer evening, this adolescent feel about the audience and a lot of excited people. Uh, there's a lot of pride in how the stories are told, the pride of these returning heroes. There's the excitement that everybody knew the show was being recorded and the images that are very well described in the writers' minds and their images from 40 years ago. It's, it's almost like you're reading a rites of passage for young people in the 1970s who were rock fans in Toronto, the way that people describe the three nights. And I think the photos fit with that as well. In fact, the, the very first story in the book, uh, which is a story called uh, Close to My Heart by a guy called Daryl Brooker, Daryl describes the ritual of what it's like to go to a show and arriving and walking up the street and the touts and the, sorry, the scalpers and the slipping into English phrases, the, <laughs> uh, the scalpers uh, crying out, selling tickets and then going through the doors and, and hoping that your ticket doesn't get too badly ripped because you want to keep it. And just all of those rituals that we all have about going to shows. And of course, uh, the very, very first show that, uh, Daryl attended was Sunday, 13th of June. Um, you know, it, it just has a, it has a great feel. And I think they did 
absolutely the right thing to reach that pinnacle, to headline twice, and then to go back and say, well, this is the place where we're going to lay down our first live album. And, and the thing for me that I've always loved about it, unlike many live recordings around the same time, but particularly subsequent, is it sounds real and it feels real. You can sense the enthusiasm from the audience um, on the sound. And I think that is that is absolutely tremendous. David, let's fast forward to the final night, the Gordon Lightfoot show before the venue was closed for renovations. What's the significance of this show and how different was Massey Hall after those renovations? First of all, it was the final show was 1st of July, uh, which is uh, Canada Day. So it was wholly appropriate. If anybody is the ultimate icon, I guess, of the venue, then it is Gordon Lightfoot. And so uh, wholly appropriate that he should mark the closing. But but I think also none of us knew what was going to happen subsequent. Uh, none of us knew that the renovation was going to take that long or the the journey to the reopening would be that difficult through pandemic and and so I think it, it gave a lot of us the, you know, time to reflect on how important Massey Hall was. And, and, and a lot of people uh, hung on to that show. And together with Rush and Neil Young, uh, we had more submissions for the book uh, for uh, Gordon Lightfoot, of course, than just about anybody else. And he's played there more times than anybody. But then it, it sort of brings the circle to a close as well uh, with the reopening, uh, which was... You know, pretty much three years later, but that it is then reopened by Lightfoot. And I went to the the first show, uh, the reopening, and yeah, I think it was quite an emotional uh, experience for a lot of people to step back in and see live music again. For many of us, and myself included, it was the first live show that I'd been to for quite some time. The fact that it was Lightfoot, the fact that he sang beautifully, uh, okay, is voice is aging a little, but it was a tremendous show, was, I think, wholly fitting. Uh, and the new hall, I have to say, they've done a, a tremendous job, in my view, because it feels and looks like the old Massey Hall, except it just looks better. It looks smarter. It looks newer. It's better equipped. The stained glass windows that they've opened up are an improvement and are actually a retrograde step back to the way the hall used to be. And so if anything, uh, I think they've improved it. I thought the sound uh, was excellent, but but we'll hear that um, as we go forward with other acts. And so I really have to take my hats off to the corporation of Massey Hall and Roy Thompson uh, in the work that they've done and the architect work and the sound engineer work that they've done to protect what the hall was all about, but not to change it. The area backstage, I'm sure, has changed. I obviously didn't see any of that. And the area, uh, the bar areas and the washrooms and the facilities uh, have all been significantly upgraded. And so they're you know, maybe not as quirky as they used to be, but if you were at the top of the hall, it was a hell of a long way to run down those stairs uh, <laughs> to go to the bathroom. Uh, even if you went in the interval, you would get down there and find that you were you know, number 2,299 of 2,300 people that were in there. 
uh, and that you weren't going to get a drink and you were probably going to miss the first song by the time you got back up the thousand steps that it seemed to get back to your uh, top level seat. So those things are gone, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. I, I think they've done a fantastic job. And uh, when you go inside, it, it does look absolutely stunning. So does that mean that those pillars are gone? Those obstructing no, no, pillars? No, no, no. There's still some pillars. There's still, <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It it is still very much the same way it was, um, but but just the seats are more comfortable, the brass is polished, they've changed a little bit of the seating area on the floor level, uh, so there are some slightly elevated seats in a ring around the floor seats, uh, and as I said, the top level areas where the stained glass is, and there's a there's a corridor a glass corridor that you can walk along to get to some of the bar areas. So there's, there's some renovations that are slightly different, but when the lights go down and you look around, you know where you are and it feels like home. Well, this is a truly stunning book, David. If Rush fans want to purchase this book, where can they do that? The book is uh, principally has been on sale online. Uh, it has its own website and the name is really not difficult to forget. Uh, it's that night at massyhall.ca or .com. We're also on Amazon, and then uh, we're stocking at a couple of uh, bookshops, uh, independent store in Toronto called Ben McNally Books, and also at the best record store in Toronto, Sonic Boom. And uh, we're talking to some other vinyl stores and independent bookstores. It's an independent book. It's a pure passion project. We have no sponsorship. Everything is fan-based. Everything was contributed. Some of the photography uh, was paid for, but but all of the stories were free. But but everything was done purely out of passion, and it's a fan book for the fans. And so we're also trying to give the opportunity for independent record and bookstores uh, to be the people who sell the, the publication. And also for this podcast, We've not done any discount on the book at all uh, to date. So it's been sold at full price. It is 85 Canadian dollars, which I know is a little pricey, but it is hardback. It is 240 pages. Uh, it is limited edition. It's full color. It's beautifully printed and bound. And I hope it will be a collector's item going forward. So it is a little pricey, I know, for some people. And we're not making any money on it. It's not a profit-making project at all. But because you guys were kind enough to offer me the opportunity to come on this podcast and talk about it, and also because the Rush contributions are such a major part of the book. I mean, I talked about all the world's a stage, but there's also a stunning photo from the January 76 show, uh, which I think is a fantastic uh, image of Alex and Getty uh, rocking out mid, mid stage is one of my favorite shots and so as well as the fact that you guys were kind enough to let me come on here and talk about it just the generosity of rush fans that contributed and participated uh, that i've put a special offer uh, onto the book as well uh, which is a 25 canadian dollar discount uh, off the the ticket price so that'll bring it down to 60 canadian i'm not sure what the exchange rate is at the moment but i'm Sure, you can work that out. Jerry likes to do math. I do not like to do math. That is untrue. <laughs> and all, all the people have to do is if they buy off uh, the website, 
www.thatnightatmasseyhall.ca. When you get to checkout, uh, there is an opportunity to put in a coupon code and you just put in uh, the word rush and click on the accept or the apply uh, coupon and you'll get the discount straight off the price. Well, I'm sure Rush fans are going to love this book, David. It is absolutely beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Thanks so much for joining us today on the Rush Fancast. We appreciate it. And thank you, guys. You have a good day. I don't know about you, Jer, but after reading this book, I came away with, we have to go to Toronto and go to Massey Hall, don't we? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I was thinking the same thing. This book is really a really nice book. These photos are incredible. Incredible. I mean, I want to be honest though. It's not a rush book. It is a book about Massey Hall. There's a lot of rush in it, but there's not a lot of rush in it. Does that make any sense? It does. But if you're like you and me, you love live music. Oh yeah. David loves live music too. We love going to see live music and you know, I have affinity for places as well. I would, I'd go to see anything in some places. And I feel like that's what this book is about. It's about going to see bands in your favorite place. It's really, really well done. And I really think our listeners, if they purchase this book, will love it. Yeah, it's absolutely beautiful. It even smells good. It does smell good. You were mentioning that before the show. It's such a high quality (laughs) book. This is a book you can put on your coffee table and just be like, this is staying here forever. Right. Exactly. Right. And yep. David was nice enough to give our listeners a discount. Again, the website is that night at masseyhall.ca or.com. And the promo code is rush and you get it for $60 Canadian or whatever that is. U.S. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. That was very generous of him. That's really generous. It's really generous. And I think worth, worth that. Oh, absolutely. Worth every penny. Absolutely. You can find us on Twitter. We are at rush fancast. Instagram, we are at the Rushcast. Email Jerry, therushcast at gmail.com. Follow or subscribe via your favorite podcast app. The base intro and outro. That is Lex. And Jerry, I hope you have a great quote to wrap this one up for us. I do. Earthshine, a beacon in the night. I can raise my eyes to Earthshine. Earthshine, stretching out your hand, full of starlit diamonds. Earthshine. That is so beautiful. Thanks, Jer. (laughs) Thank you, Steve.